Authority for hosting us, of course, uh, and all the support that um, allows us to have nine days of buzz about film. Uh, and um, Lenny is, as you know, one of Ireland's uh, foremost directors, uh, from Adam and Paul in 2004 up to A Little Stranger, uh, The Little Stranger, sorry, uh, in the last couple of years. So uh, tonight um, is an in-conversation event, so that means we're going to talk about Lenny's career in the film industry, how he got started, uh, what he does, where he goes from here, all those kind of questions, and why he did the things he did. Um, and uh, we're also going to watch some clips of some of the films uh, and, uh, and talk about those. We're going to talk about adapting novels, we're going to talk a bit about space, not the final frontier, but the space in your living room. And uh, we're going to talk a bit about uh, Ireland, I think, and the world, and uh, we'll find out where we go. Now, um, we're going to chat for a while, and then there'll be an opportunity for everyone to ask questions afterwards. You're happy enough with uh, questions? Sure, morning. absolutely. Um, and so uh, you'll get, if you've got burning questions, uh, we'll, we'll get to those at the end. Um, so, uh, as I said, welcome, Annie. And uh, as Thank ever, you. we should uh, start like all good stories at the beginning. Uh, so you were born in Dublin in the 1960s. Yeah. Um, what sort of childhood was it in the 1960s? Very different city than it is now. Yeah, I mean, very different um, city. It, I, I had a very, in a way, typical middle-class Dublin uh, childhood, but in other ways, I suppose, different in that my family were from a Jewish background. Mm -hmm. And in Dublin, I'm sure as, as in, in Belfast, um, particularly in the 60s, it was, a, it was a very, there weren't, you know, but in fact, specifically Dublin, it was just 90% Catholic, yeah. more so really. Monocultural. Um, monocultural, kind of all white. Mm. Um, and there was a tiny Jewish community when I was growing up, being a bit bigger when my mum was a kid, mm. my dad was, uh, was a kid. And actually my family originally, um, my dad's side came from Uri. Mm. They'd come from Poland, Russia to Uri in the sort of beginning of the last century. Mm. Um, and then on my mother's side, uh, my grandfather, who I knew and about whom I made my very first thing on film, which was a tiny little interview, um, he came from Poland in the 30s, so much more recently. So both sides, yeah, from that neck of the woods. But mm -hmm. yeah, my childhood was, um, in that sense, typical. Um, but everybody's, and I'm, something I often think about in, in, in work, which is nothing is ever typical. Everything no. is specific mm -hmm. and idiosyncratic if you dig deep enough. So yeah, now as I get older, I realize, like I think all of us do, that I come from a completely crazy, <laughs> you know, more or less dysfunctional family, which I thought at the time was a paragon of normality and, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, clarity. But mm -hmm. that's, that's growing up for you. Um, but yeah, but, but, but in terms of, you know, had a good education, went to a Protestant secondary school, which mm -hmm. is what Jewish kids did in Dublin. Would have been slightly different from... Than from the rest of Dublin in terms of yes, absolutely. I mean, so it was a sort of minority stick together kind of mm. thing, um, and then <laughs> um, then went to college in Dublin, and mm. you know, but it was yeah, it was a it was a, and and was interested in a lot, you know, read a lot, mm -hmm. um, always interested in ideas and and I suppose filmmaking started to bubble around. Well I was going to I was going to ask I mean earliest memories of film do you, was, yeah. it, was it TV really or was it, it was TV was... so no, I was obsessed with TV as well I used to get up on a Saturday morning and switch the TV on and wait for the kids programs to start um, and <laughs> this is before 24 hours yeah TV, which, which my kids can't believe my kids yeah. can't believe even the idea of scheduled no. television that totally blows their mind what you yeah. mean you can't just watch what you mm -hmm. want yeah, so I, used, uh, I watch a lot of TV and I use television as, as a sort of way of, I think kids do this generally, mm. you know, they use it as a way of calming and, mm -hmm. and, and I felt very kind of safe. But the experience of, 
of being really stimulated by things that I watched on a screen didn't happen until later. And I think my very, my, the first memory of seeing a film where I thought, oh, this is a different thing, was when a, our childminder, when I was probably about 12 or 13, less actually, I think I was about 11 or 12, decided to take us to see Kubrick's 2001, which wow. is, Blimey. and it, I found it disturbing and incredible and odd and kind of, but it left a massive impression on me of, sure. of this idea that in a cinema you could have an experience which was entirely mm -hmm. singular. Mm. So that was an early memory. And then I think mid-teens, the BBC, BBC Two used to show, late at night they used to show the great European mm -hmm. Uh, directors, you know, so you could switch on and see a Bergman film, or, or you know, or you could see the great Japanese filmmakers, whatever. Mm. And and then I'm, I had that same experience of this is a a world in which, or a medium in which, um, really extraordinary and at that point to me impenetrable things could be said, mm -hmm. but something about it really stuck with me. And do you think it was the visuals or the storytelling or uh, or I just the overall experience? It, I mean, ultimately, it's a kind of like. It's hard to say, but there's a sort of tonal or atmospheric quality to great mm. filmmaking, which is when all those elements of mm. story and picture and sound and, and theme kind of coalesce. Mm -hmm. And even without really understanding or being able to analyze what's happening, I think there's a kind of an extraordinary nexus of, mm -hmm. of expression. And I think that's what stuck with me. And, and much as I like photography and I'm interested in paintings and like, like any person can find, uh, uh, you know, something to, to think about, mm. I don't think of film in that way. I don't think of So it's not a painterly thing for me, really. It's more about passage of time and, and flow of, of, you know, the, the flow of images. And, mm -hmm. and so it's musical in that way mm -hmm. for me. And I think when I saw those film directors, just the distinctive flavor of a Bergman film, and it, you yeah. know, absolutely, it's like some kind of spice that's mm -hmm. in, in a particular cuisine. Mm -hmm. And I think I became very fascinated by what it was that these people were doing that was having this, that, was, that, that could yield something so singular and distinctive. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like nothing you'd ever seen yeah, before. Yeah, like nothing I'd seen before. Yeah, you see, you couldn't, this isn't replicated on TV. This no. Isn't, this is no in way. fact, it seemed to have nothing to do with what I would watch on TV. Yeah, yeah it was uh, like chalk and cheese. It was yeah. Like a, like, yeah. Whereas now TV and screen and, and things feels much more mixed up. It does feel yeah. more mixed mm. up and lots of filmmakers are working in, t lots of people who previously would have never thought about working in TV are working in TV. Mm. Mm -hmm. They're still different. You know, there still is this kind of the elongated quality of television. Uh, you know, just it means that that story and, 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 and plot, no matter how fascinating and brilliantly made and there is amazing and fascinating and brilliantly made stuff out there but the kind of the like film can still be the poem yeah in a way that television can't and it's like i don't know some people I remember somebody who knows about wine saying to me oh yeah well like um if you want to order uh you're probably better off if you don't know much about wine get, getting a white wine but if <laughs> but if you do know and it's rare or a really good red wine is mm -hmm. i have no idea if that's true mm -hmm. but i do know that probably um, you know, it's harder and rarer to find a film that does that extraordinary thing. Mm, that's true. And much television is, lots of television is better than vast amounts yeah. of film. Yeah. But for the really extraordinary experiences, for me, it still remains yeah. a filmic thing. Yeah. Um, the shorthand of your career is that you uh, were very clever 
uh, and he left school and he went to... to uh, Been talking to my mum. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> got, got all the yeah. notes here. Um, that you went to Trinity and yeah. you became a scholar at Trinity, which is a sort of special kind of um, strata of, of, of Trinity academics, studying theoretical physics and mental and moral science. And then you... Uh, and then you were offered a PhD at Stanford University in California. Yeah. Um, so, th- uh, uh, but then in the, some of the, uh, the the profiles that I've read, that you turned all this down and you went back. What actually is, seems to be more the truth is that you, while you were at Trinity, you became very involved in filmmaking. Yeah. So I was very lucky. I also mm. met, you know, I met people. In fact, some of the people, I, some people who I knew even before Trinity. Yeah. We all ended up together at college, and we'd always been interested in films, mm-hmm. particularly Ed Guiney, who's a producer that I still work with. Mm. And Ed is, you know, an amazing producer. He produced mm. The Favourite last year, and he produces all over the world. Mm. But we started together as teenagers, yeah. you know, even before college. And we used to rattle on in the way that only self-absorbed teenagers can <laughs> do about film. And then we found ourselves in college, and Ed had this idea of setting up a filmmaking group. And it was when video became just about um, democratised to the extent yeah. that you could... If you could save up money, you could buy a reel-to-reel video recorder and a camera, and mm. you could make stuff mm. yourself, which was a radical idea. Mm. And so we did this. We, we raised money, and we started making things. Um, and while I was studying first physics, and then I changed to philosophy, mm. um, I, I was having this parallel. And it was, I mean, I was, you know, for some reason, um, that that period was one where I was trying to... I'm sort of, And it was a different time, you know, when very little was happening in the film community in Ireland. Yeah, I mean, it was between the two iterations of the film board, nothing was being made. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to think that you might maybe make a life in, you know, making films seemed highly kind of like one, saying you wanted to be a, an astronaut or something seemed like yeah. a, a bit of a fantasy idea. Um, not, and people had done it. So Jim and Neil made stuff. And so it wasn't mm. impossible. But, but I was always torn between these two lives, you know, mm. one which was a more kind of ascetic kind of just thinking and writing kind of life, mm-hmm. which, which has a lot to you know, yeah. recommend it. And the other was just this draw towards film and mm-hmm. towards you know, just that kind of expressive, more outward facing. Mm-hmm. And in the end, I just couldn't let the film thing go, even though I had an opportunity. I did go to Stanford for a while. Yeah. And I always joked that I must, I'd made this short called Three Joes mm-hmm. um, before, mm-hmm. after I left college and before I went to do postgrad. And while I was at Stanford, um, it started to win prizes around the place. Mm. And my friends were phoning me drunk from film festivals, and I was writing essays on Kant and <laughs> in it, you know, thinking this. But, but, but so what seemed to make sense to me at the time was that I would just leave California and go back to Ireland and just, you mm. know, in, in search of a filmmaking career, mm. which afterwards I realized was kind of the wrong way around. You know, most yeah. people are trying to get to California, and I was kind of saying, right, get away from it. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things I would ask about that is that, um, you know, You've often talked about trying to make the things you love and trying to engage with the things that you love and the stories that you love. You know, that period where you're kind of doing DIY filmmaking and you're running around with a, with a cheap video and yeah. all that sort of stuff. Is that where that's born, that sort of pleasure? Yeah, I mean, in fact, the early, the early phase, and you don't know it at the time, mm. but all of the stuff that I did then and, and leading up to, say, Adam and Paul, the first film, and shooting Adam and Paul, which, we, which to us was just an extension of that kind of gang mentality mm. of these are good ideas it's exciting to do it we have an opportunity how bizarre is it that we're here on the street with a crew and you know everything is new mm-hmm. you can you never you can never have that again mm-hmm. i mean and and that sense of of exhilaration um 
you know, I don't know, it's just a very special phase. Mm. And I think now I think people have such an opportunity to experience that because the technology is so so available and prevalent and, 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 and prevalent mm -hmm. so you can i mean i think what's different is that the volume of material that's made yeah. and like the saturation of images and of 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 content mm -hmm. that awful word is so great mm -hmm. that in a way the freedom to make can become a freedom to be ignored or be invisible yeah. at least then when you did manage to make something you knew that just in virtue of the fact that it was probably one of two or three things that had been made that year <laughs> Everybody's going to look at it at least. And it had an intrinsic worth because had, you'd yeah. achieved it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Um, so you come back from America uh, with a suntan, presumably. Very, I was, yeah, a little uh, farmer's tan. <laughs> and, uh, and you begin, uh, you really begin as a, as a director and you start making adverts? Yeah, so there was a, I mean, there were a couple of years where I sat around thinking I'd made the most terrible mistake <laughs> trying to write, feeling sort of, like I was never going to achieve it and I'd made a, you know, and the was, guilt and, and the guilt and, not, and being broke. Mm -hmm. um, and then I thought out of desperation, which is where many good things mm. come from, you know, um, I thought I have to make things. I have to, you know, if you're a writer and if you're, or if you're a novelist or you're, that's what you want to do, you mm. can sit down and you can do your thing, whether anybody pays attention to it or not. As a director, it's very hard to, you know, to, mm. to, to, to work. Um, and I, I felt like I would, you know, if I didn't start making something soon, those muscles would atrophy. And, I, you know, so I, I thought, right, I'm going to, what could I do? And I also need to make money. Yeah. So it was a time in, in Dublin when they were looking for new talent making commercials. Mm -hmm. And this is from, you know, this was a person who was, I think if you'd met me at that point, I was very intense. I was incredibly kind of purist about what good cinema was and what awful, terrible commercial <laughs> cinema was and how dreadfully sort of, empty that was yeah. and of course there's a grain of truth in that right of course but there's also a tremendous amount of hubris and actually a tremendous amount of insecurity mm -hmm. so there i was you know wanting to be tarkovsky and realizing that if i if i just if i if i froze in that moment nothing would happen and i would be one of those people who talked about making films and never did it so yeah. i thought i have to start making i have to move something has to move mm -hmm. so i went around hawking myself with a few little bits that i'd done shorts and stuff and eventually got representation and did actually become quite successful as a yeah. commercial director. Yeah, and some of the ones you made are, are would, would still be quite memorable. Yeah. I, there's the famous uh, Carlsberg advert where the Republic win the World Cup yeah. as a dream of Jason McAteer. So, you know, Carlsberg don't do dreams, but if they did, yeah. Jason McAteer scoring the winning goal against Brazil in the World Cup yeah. final, which is, yeah, maybe a little bit It's a little far, but yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so th those made quite a big impact. And, uh, you know, I mean, the, the experience of working in quite a high-pressure environment, yeah. where you're dealing to a very tight And I kind of quite liked that. Mm. I mean, I can say loads of different things about commercials. Basically, mm. mostly it's positive in that I learned how to work with a proper crew. I learned how mm. to deal with people who had a desire to impose their ideas on you, and maybe you didn't think they were the best, and how to handle that kind of stuff, mm. how to hit a deadline, mm. money, man. money, and yeah. all that, right? But. Um, but I also, in a, at a deeper level, had to kind of confront the fact that this is who I am. I'm doing this thing. If I really do want to make stuff that's meaningful to me or and potentially one hopes meaningful to an audience, mm -hmm. then this is where I'm starting. The rest was fantasy. The sitting in my apartment dreaming of being a great European filmmaker was a kind of a, really a, a kind of an equation or a, a kind of a formula to do nothing, yeah. which is, is often the case. And it's, mm -hmm. a, it's, a, it's a young person's 
pitfall where you can you know you 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 sort of in a way you set your you set the bar so high that you never have to yeah, attempt yeah. it so, so that, you don't have to confront failure. you don't have to confront failure so i there i was making i remember once with a friend of mine um james mather who's a very very mm. fine dop making a commercial for like donegal catch fish pie or something mm -hmm. and james just pointed at the, the the clapperboard which had you know donegal catch fish pie commercial director lenny abrahamson dop james mather and just said remember remember how we used to talk about what we were going to do in the, in the film world and um but so there's that you know on the on the other side commercials are very i don't know it's it's not a when i get i'm still officially represented in the states for commercials for example right yeah and occasionally I'll get an email saying, are you available? Mm -hmm. And my first thing is to feel slightly nauseous. And the second thought is, how do I, make, how do I say I'm unavailable? What yeah. can I possibly, you know, I can't. There's something in me that having gone through that, well. yeah. Yeah. having gone through it so many times and the sort of nonsense and the silliness of, of that world, I think I got out at the right time. Mm -hmm. it, it was really good for me to, to confront actual filmmaking under pressure. But mm -hmm. I think there was a time to leave it. It's the sort of thing, if you stay too long, you're in. It's another way of ending out. up. Yeah. If, if, I mean, I think of myself that if I've got any particular, um, if I'm well adjusted for this work mm -hmm. in various ways, one of the ways I'm well adjusted is just a nose for when you're sort of in danger of becoming stuck. Yeah, that makes you know? sense. Yeah. And that's, that's a useful instinct. I'd really like to see Tarkovsky's uh, Master Fish Pie. Or Donegal Fish Pie commercial. Cash. It would have been Tarkovsky longer. It would have been longer than mine. Yeah. <laughs> Very silent. Yeah. Just a man staring at the sea. Uh, one of the things, that we, uh, the, the adverts are all up on, online, and they are really good. I mean, they're really sort of excellent kind of examples of the genre and uh, the MasterCard thing and the Carlsberg and things. But one of the things about it is that people pop up who then you worked with later on. Yeah. So Mark O'Halloran is in the Jason McAteer yeah. advert. And Michael Fassbender is in the MasterCard yes. advert. So was this the beginning of relationships? Well, it was, was it? in a way in that I discovered, like, because um, all of us were trying to survive. And, yeah. you know, so you meet all these other people and you occasionally find a kindred <clears throat> spirit, mm -hmm. uh, somebody who's passing through advertising with other things in their mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think I've been speaking. The reason why Mark and actually Mark and Tom, mm -hmm. Tom Murphy, both the leads and Adam and Paul, mm -hmm. are together in the... In that case, we're sitting in the bar together. There, yeah, so yeah. Tom Murphy's the one whose face wobbles and he stands up on the goal being scored. Yeah. Um, we had been talking, myself and Mark had been talking about Adam and Paul, mm -hmm. and we'd been talking to Tom. And so when that ad came up, I said, "Guys, just, will you come in and do this?" Mm -hmm. And it was yeah. And I met and Michael actually, funny enough, when then we then years later met again mm -hmm. um, on Frank right. and Johnny Spears, who produced the ads that yeah. I made, was a producer along with Ed of Adam and Paul. So yeah, you can always. You know, and I've one thing that has been true of my career is that I've worked with the set. You know, I've, mm -hmm. there's a core of people like Stephen Rennix who composed the music, has composed the music on every film that I've made, including the songs in Frank and mm -hmm. all of this strange and you know, pretty amazing body of eclectic music. Mm -hmm. um, Donald Gleason. And Donald Gleason. Yeah. You know, and mm -hmm. Stephen I've been friends with since we were in primary school. Yeah. Well, know, that's, so I mean, that, that's maybe a. Uh, a testament to good relationships. Yeah, I did, I, I, I've rarely fallen out with mm. anybody. I've fallen out maybe one or two people, mm. you know, and it was obviously entirely their fault. But, yeah, of course. You know. Well, yeah. And we wouldn't disagree. Um, so uh, our first clip is Adam and Paul, which is your first film, uh, that was scripted by Marco Hammerin uh, and starred uh, him and the late, great Tom, Tom Murphy. Um, and uh, the clip we're going to watch is, uh, this is where Adam and Paul, who are, 
uh, sort of wandering heroin addicts, I think, is that a fair yeah. thing to say? Uh, who are wandering across Dublin in a day's, a day's time. And uh, this is where they have finally got something that they can actually sell for drugs. And it doesn't go so well. So uh, let's roll the first clip. I mean, I've made a couple of films where there's a big tonal shift. Mm -hmm. You know, where you think you know what you're watching? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it sort of shifts into something else. Yeah, yeah. Go back. Um, and that was, that was, that's there in the first film. It's really, mm -hmm. there's a sort of moment in the middle of the film where it goes from what feels like it's, there's a sort of downbeat kind of Scandinavian slapsticky yeah, sort of quality yeah. to it. I'm a big fan of Aki Kurosaki. Kurosaki and that sort of vibe. Yeah. Um, and, and I sort of revered him mm -hmm. around when I was making that. And there is this strange sort of slow down Laurel and Hardy quality yeah, to them. Films like Leningrad, Kobe's Go America. Exactly. That, that sort yeah. of thing. Um, and then, and so you think, and I'm always interested in that, what's it like if you, if, if you allow an audience to get comfortable with a certain way of seeing a character or a film, and then you gradually make that hard to sustain, mm -hmm. and that happens in Garage, um, yeah, very much so, yeah. You know, and it happens in other films as well. Mm. Um, so, so yes, it ends up being it's it's a it's a very sad film, mm. but it's it it's also I suppose. I mean, there is a sort of sweetness to it, even mm. in that. There's a kind of love, yeah, um, between the two characters yes. and, and and other characters and things, and, and and there's a sympathy for their life. Yes, I think more than anything as as well. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, the end is, is extremely tragic, uh, but also correct and right yeah. and, and works for yeah. the story. I mean, Mark wrote it yeah. um, and, uh, and then went on. You worked, worked together later yeah. on. But I mean, there's a, there's a sense th these are two people wandering around Dublin. Now, there's another very famous story about a man wandering, wandering across around Dublin. Dublin. Yeah. Was that the, the kind of confidence of youth? Yes. To kind of ape that? To, well, to the joke we used to have is that we're sort of... Um, why not? If you're <laughs> going to make if you're going to make a Dublin story, yeah. let's just make it. You know, it's let's. Why not just quote Ulysses? You know, yeah. the mm -hmm. day this, the twenty four hour wonder around Dublin, and a bit of Beckett as well. Mm -hmm. Why not just have a little bit of Waiting for Godot? <laughs> and we thought that was great. Mm -hmm. And I think it was only when we started filming, and and we there's a scene in the middle of the film. And it's really where the where the tone changes, where they mm -hmm. mug a kid with Down syndrome. Yeah. And that was the first morning of the first day of the shoot. And I remember Mark and I standing there thinking we may have made a terrible. <laughs> terrible mistake mm -hmm. um but yeah it was that but it's a, it's a sort of i mean it's a it's a, a a kind of silly um you know sort of head scratchy mm -hmm. um shambling kind of film it's not like anything you'd see before i mean it's 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 yeah. not train spotting it's not no there's no sh there's no kind of i mean obviously the budget was one thing but it was a there's no showiness there's no a, there's a kind I, mean, of I think, I think two things first of all because i'd made a load of commercials i think i mm. got out of my system that thing that sometimes young directors have mm. which is that they've got to be super muscular in their first film yeah. they've got to show all the things they can do with the camera mm. they've got to do like massive one-shot scenes and because that that's what directing is mm. but i made lots of commercials, lots of them very glossy. The commercial I made before Adam and Paul, the commercial for 60 seconds had twice the budget of the whole of Adam mm -hmm. and Paul. Yeah. So I sort of had the fun of playing with that stuff. Mm -hmm. And now I just wanted to do this in a way which I thought was right. Mm. And I think the other thing is, I'm not a great fan of, of people sometimes call it a black comedy. I don't think it mm. is. Because black comedy suggests a kind of uh, contract with the audience where you go, we're both, we're all really clever mm -hmm. and we can kind of, we can 
play with the fates of these characters. Mm -hmm. and, and we kind of were all in on the joke. Whereas I think this is a more tender kind of, mm -hmm. in a way, vaudevillian approach, which is, you, it's about, it's comedy as empathy. Mm -hmm. But also you had two actors who were able to give depth to yes. what could be quite superficial on the page. Absolutely, I mean, you Tom know, Murphy, the late Tom Murphy brilliant. is one of the, I think, one of the greatest losses mm -hmm. to, the, mm -hmm. to this island in the sense that he was, um, I mean, a magnificent mm -hmm. actor and died very shortly after this film of, yeah, of cancer. 30, 39? Yeah, he's 39. Mark O'Halloran always used to say uh, he just couldn't face the idea of being 40. <laughs> and he died, you know, yeah, it was a terrible mm -hmm. tragedy sure. to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, but an excellent testament on, yes. on, on screen. Um, so Adam Paul breaks through. People in Belfast are lending DVD copies to each other and saying, you must watch this. Uh, and so there's a kind of word of mouth thing. And I, I think some of the festivals take notice of it as well. Yeah, it? it went to, it, I didn't realise at the time that it was a big deal, but it went to this festival called Telluride in oh. in uh, in America, in, mm. in the mountains, which was a big festival. And they picked 20 films a year. Mm. And Room ended up going there. And mm. it's, the, it's the festival pretty much like lots of the films that end up in the Oscars start in Telluride. Mm -hmm. We didn't realise that. We were this... So there were lots of stars around the place, and then this odd, low-budget <laughs> film about two heroin, heroin addicts. <laughs> but but you know, so that was, and then it, it did other festivals and it travelled a bit, and mm. and then it became a sort of cult thing. And yes. I always meet particularly comedians in the UK mm -hmm. and people who became champions of the film. Mm. Um, and 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 oddly, it's it's how I ended up meeting John Ronson and Peter Strawn years later really? and making Frank, is because right, they were Adam and Paul fans. Yeah. Um, so Adam Paul breaks through, and then you and Mark again collaborate on uh, Garage, yes, uh, which is a, a landmark film in terms of Irish film, uh, in terms of what it achieved, but also the the kind of film that it is. Uh, the film features Pat Short as Josie, uh, and it's the story of a man stuck stuck in the middle of Ireland. I think I can say that, um, who badly misjudges a, a friendship with a younger fella, uh, which leads then to tragedy. So uh, can we play the clip for that? Uh, so that that's Pat Short. We'll just wait for the mics to come back in here. There we are. Hello. Got it. Nice one. Um, so that's 2007. And, and Pat Short, I have to ask you this question because whenever I, I hadn't seen Garage when it came out, I watched it recently. Um, why is Pat Short not crowned the greatest actor that Ireland ever produced? Because he is phenomenal in this film. I, I mean, because people underestimate. Mm -hmm. He's a comedian. Yeah, I suppose. You know, that's what he's known as. And. I don't know if people knew, anybody here would have seen Pat's stuff like when he was part of Dumbelievables. Mm -hmm. It was a really broad comedy, wonderful stuff. He used to play at the Arts Theatre. Yeah, the Botanic, so he's a, he, he was a, he's a kind of clown, really. Mm -hmm. But he's also, and, and in fact, there's no but, I mean, because clowns quite often, mm -hmm. in that Michel Simon tra tradition of uh, French Buffoon actors. And, um, I think because Pat doesn't project that serious self uh, mm. kind of, Don't he doesn't project himself. himself as a serious actor. Mm. I mean, I was joking earlier on that when we went to Cannes with Garage, um, all these very, um, you know, cahiers de cinema, mm. kind of cinema film journalists were interviewing Pat, you know, on the terrace of this beautiful building in Cannes. And they were asking him, you know, they were treating him like he was a sort of, you know, came from, you know, from Grotowski's theatre in, in Warsaw or something. Not Limerick. No. Not, not Limerick. <laughs> and Pat just, he just enjoys playing yeah. against that. Yeah. 
I mean, he has done, you know, he's done Martin McDonough plays, he's done lots mm -hmm. of other stuff. But I do think his performance in this is just spectacular. It's the way, the timing, the way he says yeah. David as he walks away. I, I mean, the, 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 everything, yeah. if you watch the film and you learn of the relationship between that young man and, 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 and Josie, which, which turns out very badly, but there's a kind of, yeah, just a yearning, a kind of yeah. realisation. And actually a yearning there. for, you know, just in case, I mean, if people don't know the story, it, it's just, it's Pat, Pat's character becomes... Pat's character has grown up in a, mm -hmm. has had a life in which he never had a kind of teenage no. friendship. Mm -hmm. He never, he was never properly integrated socially and he became this kind of oddity in the town. And, and he gets friendly with David and they genuinely do become kind of close in mm -hmm. a way. And he does something really silly. He shows this kid a porn tape that a, a lorry driver friend of his gives him. And in a way, he wants to share that teenage space. Mm -hmm. And he also wants to be sexual in a context where it's not shameful, yeah. or so he thinks. Mm -hmm. And of course, he's neglecting the fact that he's a 40-something-year-old man and, and this guy's 16-year-old, 15-year-old boy. But Pat's kind of capacity to play this delicate, vulnerable, I mean, the, the, you know, I could go on and on about it. Um, and not in that, and you know, in a way, in a way, in a way that I think, in the hands of a lesser actor or a more conventionally serious actor, yeah. actually, could have become melodramatic, mm -hmm. overly hammy, hammy overly sort of projected. Mm -hmm. You know, Pat as the clown understands how to sort of hold that persona, both mm. primarily physically. You started with, I like to direct in that way with some actors and in some context, mm -hmm. to start with the outside, to start with how they walk, how they sound. Mm -hmm and not to over-psychologize. Mm. And in Pat's case, he's just not interested in a long conversation about it. He wants to know how the guy moves, what, what it's like to be around him. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that happens, I think, in, in, in drama schools, but also in the way people just generally talk about, about telling stories you know, in drama, mm -hmm. we get hooked on this idea that in order to understand or, or, or connect with a character, an audience has to somehow know lots of backstory or they need to know what the kind of key um, problem is in that character's life. Like what obstacles are they up against? What's the sort of, you know. But actually, you know, if you walk into a, um, a shop somewhere to buy a packet of cigarettes and you mm -hmm. have a two, you know, a 20 second interaction with the person behind the counter, you will come away with a strong feeling of who that yeah. person is without, without knowing anything about details. I think one of the one of the difficult things in filmmaking and, and, and it's not easy, but it's it's such a it's is to try and find a level of presence, mm -hmm. you know, of the character mm. that and that and that you trust that human beings are kind of they are grounded in empathy mm -hmm. and they bring their own sort of experiences to the, the look and feel of the other person. Mm -hmm. And then they fill in that interior. Yeah, it just was beautiful working with Pat because he just totally got that and it felt like we were making shape. And sometimes that face, you know, when Pat's looking at him walk away, there's another great that's echoed later. Yeah, when he at the moment the kid runs away. Yeah, and he looks after him. Yeah. we and we that was mechanically directed in a mm. way. So like you we talked talk, about where we, his we face talked would about because Pat had found this way of defocusing his gaze. He'd found this way of of kind of. He did this small thing with his mouth that we found in rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And all of the pathos came from that, you know? Mm -hmm. 
and he felt it, but it starts outside and works in. It's amazing, some of the things he does with his fists yeah. and his hands, and there's a, there's a long shot you have of his um, hands hanging, mm -hmm. uh, unused mm. kind of hands, and uh, it, it, it's extraordinary uh, the, the way that he's able to hold yeah. positions and, yeah. you know, and, a, and a knowledge of his own physicality. Yes, absolutely. He also based uh, Josie in part on a guy who he knew from where he grew up, um, he used to talk about him as being, he has a brilliant way of talking about him, but he said like a good example of how this guy would operate was if he'd come to your door to tell you something, he'd ring the door, he'd turn around, start looking around, and then he'd get a fright when the door opened and wonder why it was that you'd <laughs> summoned him, you know. So we used to have those sorts of conversations and um, Mark gave him um, a, a long backstory about a bad hip, which is so what he tells everybody yeah. he means. I'm stretching the hip. I'm stretching the hip. I mean, he's got some great lines. It's a, it's a wonderful... I mean, Mark O'Hanlon is a brilliant writer. He's a brilliant writer. And so there's this uh, scene where they're talking about uh, catching eels. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and Pat Short, uh, Josie's character is talking about... And this is granted a With man... With Tom Hickey. Uh, yeah. yeah, Tom Hickey. Granted a man trapped in Ireland. And he talks about catching eels and putting them in a bucket and watching them for three weeks, or like three days, tie themselves in knots, and then they died. Yeah, and he's <laughs> telling this to a man who he's afraid to meet because this is a guy, Mr. Scarrett, who suffers dreadfully from depression. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Scarrett likes to talk to Josie and jo it frightens Josie, mm -hmm. but he, he's a decent guy and he, he lets, you know, he, he knows that somehow Scarrett likes to talk to him. They go for a walk around the lake and yeah. sit down. And Josie, in an attempt to make conversation <laughs> with this kind of borderline suicidal depressive, tells <laughs> the story of the <laughs> eels. <laughs> <laughs> a day in, in a bucket. In a bucket. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a brilliant, it's a wonderful film and, and must have been a real, a real achievement. It must have felt like an achievement when you finished it. Well, you know, it's a film without music bar one cue in the middle. Mm. And, it, you know, it's a film where we set out to do something very simple, but that's very hard, mm. you know, when not much happens. Yeah, it's very quiet, yeah. very silent film, a lot of, lot of the nature and the countryside. Yeah. And, yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm, it's, a, I'm very, it's a film I feel mm. very... Positive, although I find it hard to watch clips of my own films. I don't enjoy it. I just this, find this will be fun tonight. Then. Yes, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm two down, four to go. <laughs> well, look, um, moving on to the next uh, piece of work, major piece of work that you did, which was again um, collaborating with Mark on Prosperity. Yes. Which was a four part TV drama that you delivered for RTE. And it was a sort of a portma portmanteau yes. um, sort of exercise where there was four main characters. Um, who lived in a, a one particular area of Dublin? They lived in the, in the in the more or less in the inner city. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And um, uh, so the clip we're going to see is Stacy, who's a seventeen-year-old single mother, and um, she's f trying to find something to do uh, with her child, and which is, as we all know, walk uh, in a pram, which is what you do when you have kids. Um, and she starts to get hassled by uh, by a guy from the street, uh, and so this gives a, a flavour of prosperity. So that's uh, prosperity. Yeah, um, it's another cheery. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but actually, interesting enough, there are some characters in Prosperity that are in Adam and Paul. Right. Like, for so example, there's a there's another there's a dad character mm -hmm. who we meet in Adam and Paul playing football with a little kid. Yeah. And then we pick him up again in Prosperity a few years later, and when he split up from his partner and um, the kid comes to visit him, he's back living with his mother. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a little themes and, mm. and, and connections. How did it come back? Was it, was it something that RTE approached you or was it something? No, that, I mean, we always thought RTE sort of commissioned it by mistake in that <laughs> it was not the sort of thing they were making. Like all the best. Point, like all the best stuff. Well, oddly enough, um, we made Adam and Paul during the boom. Mm -hmm. And so we told the story about people who were not, yeah. didn't fit uh, that. Yeah. And then um, 
we made, um, you know, we, and, and I remember this, it continued and uh, Bertie Ahern made this speech where he said, you know, you've never had it so good, basically. Yeah, yeah. And that's what made us sort of want to do that. Mm -hmm. And we approached RT with this idea of four inter interconnected, but sort of separate with the odd interconnected mm -hmm. story. And yeah, I'm, it's funny, I haven't watched uh, those Andrew Bennett, brilliant yeah. actor playing. It's very sinister. I mean, really yeah. sort of dark and actually, she's amazing because mm -hmm. Siobhan was, she really hardly acted at all. She actually plays now in Date from Ad Mary. She's, she's, oh, yeah, she's the friend. Oh, yes, that. she is. Um, but she, uh, she just has that extraordinary quality of being, she's not capable of being, you just put a camera on her and you, you absolutely believe her. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was, was, that was a sort of, that was my first ever sort of television thing. And it must have been quite exciting in terms of, I mean, 2007 bleeds into 2008, 2009, and, and, and it starts to crumble. And it crumbles yeah. quickly as well. Yeah. And actually, so, oddly enough, what we decided to do then was uh, not, not to do your segues No, but what, what Richard did, which is... Yeah, 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 yeah. What Richard did was, was us going, now everything's supposed to be um, terrible, mm -hmm. and the crash has happened. It hasn't affected these people. Yeah. They're all right. They're fine. Yeah. You know. And I mean, that's one of the things about a lot of those early films that you made about winners and losers. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, certainly Adam and Paul, but it wasn't the projection of Ireland at the time. It wasn't the kind of Galway races kind of, no, you know. No, no. And it was, it was very different. And did you feel that was important to you to I tell those I think there were two stories? aspects in which we wanted to be, and we were pretty, felt, I think we talked about this, but something we were conscious of, two ways in which we wanted to sort of push against mm -hmm. um, what was dominant or current. One was, you know, the pure aesthetics of it, and one was more political. So the more political one was, was specifically, you know, we've talked about it, mm -hmm. you know, what you're trying to say about where the culture is and, mm -hmm. you know, what the, what the reality is, you know, behind the, the narrative mm -hmm. that you get, the dominant narrative. But the other and maybe more the thing we were most passionate about was trying to work in a way which is a bit different to the way that for our films not to feel like other films at that time. Yeah. Not to feel like a sort of, there was a kind of, I think there was a period of time when there was a, when Irish films had a very particular quality mm -hmm. um, and both Mark and I were like really interested in European cinema and, mm -hmm. and so Adam and Paul is this kind of confection of in the one hand on the one hand there's a sort of social realistic heart to it thematically yeah. Yeah. but actually aesthetically it's much more of a of an odd Scandinavian yeah, and how the tones and the tones are and, different yeah. and mm. so so tone has always been something I've been really fascinated with and wanted in all those first films like Garage is an attempt to make in Ireland mm. a, a film about rural Ireland which is which is bare austere mm. I mean you were aware of, the, of film language in Ireland or the fact that there maybe was an absence of film language yeah in Ireland? I was aware of this obsession with what with 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 what Irish films should be mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know everybody I think early on in a national cinema everybody wants to have this conversation about what 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 what's the identity of our national cinema? Mm -hmm. I think I was I remember being really obnoxious, you know, at various early film-based meetings, where everybody was talking about the kind of inner, uh, what the what the sort of uh, you know unifying feel. And I, yeah. I just remember saying, well, we're not making anything good. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the biggest thing yeah. that we're not doing. So the the language is bad. Yeah, it's just that it, it doesn't matter what you think you're. Like if it, if you don't say it in in a way which is kind of immediate or fresh mm -hmm. or alive in the medium, mm -hmm. you can have any number of earnest urban drug dramas mm -hmm. where people are you know in, having arguments in big close-ups and breathing heavily at each other, 
But that's just so ultimately with higher production values. Yeah. So I think myself and Mark felt like, let's have a go anyway, mm. whether we succeed or not, in trying to understand this cinema thing and mm. try to bring to it our love of the medium, yeah. not just, um, you know, sort of off-the-shelf tropes. Yeah, the templates from yeah. Hollywood or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, the next film that you did, what Richard did, which you mentioned, um, really did reinvent the, the way that Ireland is projected because, uh, as we were talking about earlier, the middle classes very rarely get on, on to it, and if they are, they're there for comic relief. Yes. Um, and so what Richard did was a very different sort of film. Uh, it's based on a real case, uh, which was called the Club Annabelle case, is that right? Where a young student died um, at the hands of other uh, students from the same school. And so this was turned into a, a novel by Kevin Parr called Bad Day at Black Rock. Um, and then you then took that source material and turned it into we, what Richard we did. We further fictionalised yeah. it. And, and so it's very, it. very far away from the original story, but it's... There's a, there's yeah, a everybody, I mean, we, you know, a huge amount of conversation in the lead-up to making that film is, mm -hmm. should we, you know... I think you have to ask yourself really serious questions if you're going to touch something which is a real case and where there are mm -hmm. surviving relatives. But we felt that what we were doing was, a, was an honourable thing, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And we did have contact with the family of the victim and, and that all, you know, they were very generous about mm. the film in the end. And, and so we felt that we had done something that was, that we could stand over. Mm. But, but nevertheless, in the mind of the, of the tabloids particularly, mm -hmm. and the easy headline stuff, we were making a film about the Annabelle's killing. Yeah. And that and brought with it a tremendous, and we were making a film from the point of view of the, of the perpetrator. Yeah. Which again, is it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's potentially well. I mean, we've seen the the, the Bulger case still yes, rolls absolutely. on twenty thirty yeah. years down the line. So, um, well, well, look, we'll watch the clip. This is a clip where Richard, uh, just from a dip in the sea. Oh, move. Uh, you're right. Go ahead. Go Let's, ahead. Go ahead. Play the clip. Uh, so that's what Richard did. That's a small snippet, snippet of what Richard. So that is Richard, the the good-looking one, uh, in the middle, uh, and that's his family. The, is that his elder brother? I can't remember. Is that his elder brother or his teacher? No, it's his coach. His coach. Yeah. Right. Okay, so these are, uh, I mean, a sort of black rock school. Yeah, so he's of. a sort of rugby playing kid yeah. who has been not just the golden boy at school, but also the golden boy at home. He's mm -hmm. And he's, I mean, people really take very different, we were talking earlier and you were saying how much of a deep dislike you took. Oh, to. it's, it's appalling and, shit. Just and awful. In, this, in that scene particularly, there's a sort of, but actually, by his own lights, he's a person who's trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. So in early, like he's the one who doesn't like somebody, he doesn't like kids being bullied in yeah. school. He has that kind of head boy idea of himself, mm -hmm. which is what I was, I mean, I went to a private rugby playing school. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one, my best friend, was sort of like the, would have been Richard had he not been also kind of interested in music and, yeah. but he was like the kid that everybody wanted to be. He also had a Smiths record though. He, he exactly. Yeah. Um, and he, so that, that thing of trying to work out what it is like to not have the experience of failure. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why the dad says no failure's not an option, it's a mm -hmm. certainty. Um, and that's what we watch in the, over the course of the film is you watch that kid have to face um, a small, slightly humiliating failure mm. and it ultimately leads to him killing somebody yeah. because he can't stand the humiliation. His rage, His rage, his rage is massive yeah. and yeah it was just and I wanted to do something I didn't I wanted to do something about the middle class mm. but not in a way which is trying to generalize I mean it, it you know 
the particular is always stronger than the, the, the individual. The, you know, yeah. and and uh, s but it was interesting to to see how that was dealt with. You know, how the how the how it was received as a film. Because mm. I mean, there's always a tendency, you know, to gleefully kick uh, the middle classes or the upper classes, especially in Ireland, um, because there's a kind of sense of a smugness or a. And also post Celtic Tiger, there's a kind of sense that you know nobody they, didn't, they got away with it yeah, sort sure. of thing. Uh, uh, but there's there's a there's a, ten, a, a, a moral ambivalence that runs through the, the film that's quite interesting. There, you don't make a lot of judgment. No, and, and you try not to. I mean, I feel mm. really, I do feel for him, mm. and I do I, like I do try, and it sounds ridiculous, but in a funny sort of way, you do have to, I think, love your characters in the way that like an absolutely <laughs> ideal parent which I am absolutely not as a parent. <laughs> but the ideal of parenting, or like that sort of the, 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 the sort of the peak mm. parenting is to, is, to, is to see clearly the child, mm. no matter, and no matter what they do, to, to not shy away from that, but at the same time to, to have a, a, a love for what the sort of fundamental humanity that remains, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. it is that kind of unconditional. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to feel, for me anyway, I have to feel that about the central character, and then it forces me to try and look at them as closely as I can. Um, and well, I, I do think, feel for him. In I it. think one of the things about your characters in all your films, really, is that there isn't—they're not ciphers. I mean, even someone as terrifying as Old Nick, you know. I mean, yeah. there's, there's a kind of, uh, you know, a kind of three-dimensional element yeah. to them. That, you know, and it's also, you know, it—it's it, not just that you're trying to warm the characters up for an audience. Mm -hmm. It's, it actually has a deeper sort of significance. If you're dealing with a character who does something monstrous, mm. it's much more terrifying if you recognize in that character a shared mm. humanity. Like, you know, if you, you know, I've, I have a project which I've been working on for a long, long time, which is set in the Second World War, and it's mm. about somebody at the absolute, the awful center of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And he's a perpetrator. And what's terrifying about him is, is, is the degree to which you can identify with him. It's easy if somebody's a monster. Mm -hmm. You don't have to deal with that. It's mm -hmm. just they're another type. Mm -hmm. they, they're, they're, they're sort of other than you. So, so if you're, even if you're showing the worst in people, I think you show it in a more kind of immediately meaningful way or in a way that might make the audience reflect upon themselves mm -hmm. if you show that in the round and with a certain sort of humanity. It's a, and it, uh, it's a very philosophical way of viewing, writing, and creating of art. Um, I mean, do you, did, do you still think your studies inform how you regard storytelling, how you regard narrative and, and the care for the character? I think I've maybe probably true to say that whatever way I, whatever it was that drew me to being interested in ph philosophy, mm -hmm. it's probably similar, similar to what impulse. draws me yeah. to, to film. I don't consciously apply, I mean, the great thing about philosophy is not kind of even like that. It's a kind of, it's really a way of thinking. Yeah. Um, a thread that runs. A thread, but I did, yeah, I do think about, um, I do think there is a sort of shared impulse in both mm. without, without me kind of being conscious of it. Yeah. I, think it's, I think it's fascinating. I think it make, makes for better characters uh, and for more watchable characters. Um, so uh, two years later, you uh, create Frank, which is an extraordinary film. Um, uh, again, this was one I missed and I've caught up with in the last couple of days. And it's brilliant uh, for so many different reasons. Um, this is a film about arts. Uh, I think first, first and foremost it's about art, but it's also about mental illness. Uh, but very clearly, and because its script writer is, one of its script writers is John Ronson, it's very much about social media 
and where art sits within social media. Um, so the, uh, the, the premise is, uh, that, uh, uh, well, it's hard to explain, but uh, yeah. young- Imagine uh, trying to pitch it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how it's you It's a film that. about a man yeah. in the head. <laughs> Give me 20 million pounds. <laughs> but um, the, yeah, so, uh, so Frank is a musician, a lead singer with, who always wears a, uh, a, a paper mache head uh, based on a real character called Frank Sidebottom, who some of you may know. Uh, there's a new, in fact, a new documentary out, uh, the, Christ, the Chris Seavey uh, story. Uh, but that's just a jumping off point. So uh, Donald Gleeson is a young songwriter from a seaside town somewhere in England. He ends up with a band and they end up in this kind of situation trying to record a album. Uh, unfortunately, their manager doesn't pay the rent. So if we play the clip, we'll find out what happens. <laughs> it really is wonderful. Um, and uh, it's kind of... Wait for the mics to come on. Okay. Um, it kind of has a... a sla again, slapstick, but also that tonal shift yeah. that you talked about. I mean, how, you know... You're sort of watching it, you're kind of thinking this is crazy art house film, and then it morphs into something slightly different. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I should ask the question, how did John Rod did John Rodson come to you with the story? He was in Frank Sidebottom's He was band. in Frank Sidebottom's band. Why this film is so hard to t describe is that it's a fictional character based actually on a real fictional character. Because mm -hmm. right. Chris Seavey was a person, and, but he became Frank Sidebottom on stage, and this odd confection of an idea is what would it what what was what would Frank Frank Sidebottom the odd Mancunian songster how would he like to imagine himself and we reimagined him as a sort of quasi Captain Beefheart meets yeah. Daniel Johnston uh -huh. guy right so it's slightly guru so exactly um, well what happened was John and, and the brilliant screenwriter called Peter Strawn had written a draft and this is the first ever time that something came to me via my agent. Mm -hmm. Um, and Film 4, who I had a relationship with yeah. from, from earlier films. And uh, I read it, and I said to my agent, I, I don't think this is makeable, I don't think you could make this film. It was very different at that point. Mm -hmm. It was set in the 80s, it was, it was a whole different sort of, so there's no social media angle and various different patterns of, of action. And then she said, read it again, and I did, and I suddenly became fixated on, the, on, the on just this idea of this odd central character, like a sort of puppet like mm -hmm. a kind again that slapstick that that downbeat comedic sort of i don't know something just stuck in my head and particularly the scenes in this place vetno which is which is where they go like captain beefheart famous famously yeah. did to a cabin in the woods to record the great album mm -hmm. and they all went a bit mad and, and nobody was allowed to eat nobody was allowed to eat and and cap beefheart famously punched somebody in the face because he said they were thinking in the key of c <laughs> which is actually a, a scene in the film we, we robbed um, but uh, <laughs> we, um, so this whole, that, that it just became fixated. So then I went and met John and the producers and Peter. Mm. And it turns out they were Adam and Paul fans. This is where it all came uh, from. So the circles. And um, we started talking and got on extremely well. And mm -hmm. then over the next basically year and a half, while I was, while we were working, I made what Richard did while we were reworking right. the script on Frank. That okay. took about a year and a half, two years. Right. Because it went through different iterations and it, be, it, 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 it just took on these different shapes. I went with John to, um, w to a, mu a music festival, one of the um, really sort of indie music festivals. Mm -hmm. And he introduced me to Twitter. This was uh, back in 2010. Yeah. And then we started talking about Twitter and had the idea of John. Because John, there used to be a voiceover in the old script. Mm -hmm. So we had the idea of instead of a voiceover, we will have something different, which is that his, his, his social media feeds will become mm. our voiceover. 
And what's interesting about that is you get the, 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 lovely, the lovely, totally faked version of himself mm -hmm. that he projects to the world. Yeah. There's, a, there's a great, I mean, I, I love the opening where there's a sequence where John, the wannabe musician who's basically not very talented at all, um, is writing, trying to write songs. Mm -hmm. And he's writing these dreadful songs while tweeting about, you know, hashtag making music and all the usual stuff. <laughs> it's the madness thing. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He keeps on, he's a terrible musician, so he keeps on, uh, he'll hear a tune and then, let, I mean, you must have seen the film, but he comes back and then he just starts to write a song and it just turns into It turns into the one thing he heard. Constantly, over and over again. I mean, I, I, what to me seems at the heart of the film is about, is it more important to chase art to create the art that you need and that is inside you, or is it to chase fame to be? Yeah, we can, you know, we can get famous. We can get people to engage. Yeah, so so the, I mean, it's, it's all about masks, really. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously, um, and and it's, it's also, also about the fetishization of supposedly crazy genius. Yeah, and what people are not interested in really is that. What they're interested in is the kind of. You know, it's it's the same way that I'm sure people grew up thinking that it's somehow cool that Jim Morrison drank himself to mm -hmm. death or, you know, that what you're after is a kind of shape of something rather yeah. than the thing itself. Yeah. And Frank represents the thing itself in this odd, ridiculously comedic form of the hidden person. Mm. But you're right, it is ultimately about John accepting the fact that he's just not very creative mm. and that no amount of posturing, no amount of sort of social media self-promotion is going to change that fact. Um, Which may, I mean, may or may not be true. I mean, the, the, yeah. the, the, there are people in the world who have absolutely no talent who are very famous. For no, it. In, so indeed, no. The, the, the fame thing you're, you can totally yeah, achieve. You can make that. Yeah. I mean, it is amazing what people. I'm just as a side note, what massive sense of an entitlement and a sort of bullish refusal to give up can yeah. achieve. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. we are living in that a kind world of right now. Kind of just keep going, yeah. keep your head down, keep going. Yeah. No, it is true. Um, one of the things I, uh, that I loved about the film was the kind of the, the assembly that you pulled together. The yeah. I mean, this, films about bands are always great because they're a band. Yeah. But uh, you know, there's Maggie Gyllenhaal, there's Donald Gleeson, the two French guys who. There's a, there's, yeah, there's, uh, he's actually in. I don't know if you watch uh, Call My Agent, the French thing. That the, the French guy's in. He's a great yeah. actor. So he only ever speaks French, and everybody else understands it yeah. except John. <laughs> and uh, he mostly says things like he's an idiot yeah. or, you know. And then later on he speaks English. Then he speaks no, perfect yeah, English, yeah, yeah. yeah. But Carla Azar, who's the drummer, who only mm. speaks once in the film, she's a brilliant drummer. Yeah. One, one of the things we did with that film, which made it very hard to shoot and very stressful, but was the best decision, was that we would do the music live. Because oh. I think when you do, when you see band films, mm -hmm. It all falls apart when they play because it's yes. just playback. Yeah, it's like football and films. It's, it's like, like football yeah, and films, yeah. exactly. So we, we had to cast people that had some musical ability. Mm -hmm. We made a very smart move to cast a very brilliant drummer because that is so hard. And it's the core. And it's the core. And, and a very good bass player who happens to be a good actor yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then the rest of them could play. Mm -hmm. So Michael can play mm -hmm. a bit. Donald can play a bit, all of that. But while we were casting and while different cast members were coming in and out of the equation mm. we were having to rewrite the music all the time because it had to be written for what they were capable of playing on the instruments that they could play right. and then on set you're also you are filming you know live performances but with you know dialogue yeah so it was really, you know, it was Sorry, a very hard thing I mean, to do. You are a director who rehearses a lot. Is that, is that Well, true? I rehearse, yeah. no, I, I, I don't, I rehearse 
I rehearse sort of in a particular way for an intense but short period. Right. Okay. Because I think and I set don't, the tone is that to set the yeah, tone? Yeah, to set the tone and also test it for myself and yeah. see what's working. Mm -hmm. And also just make sure that everybody's in the same film. I mean mm -hmm. you, when you gather the actors together, that was very difficult because mm -hmm. you know, people worked quite differently. Mm -hmm. Um you know, people were sort of came in at different times in the process, but we did manage, I think, to bring it together. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, with with like so what I like to do is to I sometimes do this thing we'll maybe we're gonna talk about room, but yeah. Uh, with Room, what I did was I didn't want to over-rehearse with the little boy, mm -hmm. but I did want him to feel safe with Bree. Mm -hmm. So what I used to do is I used to schedule rehearsals, and then I'd turn up, and you know we had the set built early for this reason, and I'd leave Bree and Jake in, on set, and I'd mm -hmm. say, listen, I've just got there's a fire that I have to deal with, you know, in the wardrobe department. I'm gonna have to be back, and I'd go for half an hour, and I'd yeah. come back and we do a little bit of work, and I'd go. So they would end up just sitting together and chatting. And that dead, and that, dead space. That, that, and that dead space allowed the little boy to not feel he was on, if yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. He could just, and he, they sort of got to be friends, and yeah. that was very important. Mm. Um, yeah, so uh, Room is, um, you're doing all the segues for me. I like, I, uh, it. I like yeah. it. It's good, good stuff. Uh, Room was the, this had uh, been the second novel you'd adapted yes. as well, I suppose, um, by Emma, o Emma Donoghue. And it was, it was a really big hit as a novel. It was a huge hit yes. when it first came out. Uh, there's a story about how you ended up working on the yeah. thing, the, the, the story of the letter that you wrote yeah. to her. I mean, I, so I'd been working with Film 4 on Frank and on Garage, and myself and Ed had been working together. But I, before I made Frank, and actually before What Richard Was Out, I read Room. Mm. And I had a real epiphany about how I would make it and mm. how it could be made and that I should make it. You mm. know, that feeling, that real sort of, strong gut feeling that you understand how to do something and and that I really wanted to do it. And my kid was, I had a boy of pretty much the age of the kid in the novel when I read it. And I think that was part of what made it sort of personal for me. Mm. But I had made two, the only things that were out in the world were Adam and Paul and Garage at that point. Yeah. And um, it, I realized it was quite a big thing to go to a novelist who just had an American bestseller mm. and say, I know you have all these people in Hollywood who want to option your book, but you, you know you should give it to us, um, especially because she was she'd been born in Dublin. She's now she's been living in Canada for a long time. But I know myself that I would have probably gone. I have just got out of the small country, onto the big continent, and now all sorts of famous producers and directors are after this book. I don't think I think I would have gone, you know. Thanks, but, but no thanks. Thanks, but no thanks. Mm -hmm. But so what I did was, in order to try and make the case as strongly as I could, I just wrote a very long letter, a sort of 10-page letter to Emma describing what I wanted to do, mm -hmm. why I felt, what I felt about the novel, how I felt it worked internally, and how that could be transposed. And, um, and, and luckily, she, she responded really well to the letter. It still took us a while because I think a lot of her advisors and agents were saying, well, well you know, what, can this person get the film made even? Yeah. And then around that time, what Richard did came out. So made a bit of a stir at Toronto. Mm -hmm. And then news came out that I was doing this film called Frank and that Maggie and Michael Fassbender were in it. So suddenly there, were, there was like a few stamps mm -hmm. on the passport that were like, and, uh, and a then- A letter from a bank manager. Exactly. He said that I was a good prospect. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then we met. And once we met, then we knew yeah. Uh, you know, it's really interesting with Emma. And did you think you shared a vision? Did yeah, you you, we did. We got on like a house on fire. It yeah. was a really, really good first meeting. And you know what's really fascinating? 
because these things can take time and because contractual stuff is really messy, mm. I don't think the, I mean, this is not, I would not advise this of anybody trying to make a, an adaptation, but I think the option on the book was not finally, like all the things were not finally signed until like a few days before we shot. Yeah. But we, but myself and Emma just sort of trusted each other and we just got on with it. Yeah. And that just, that stuff just continued Continue to happen in the background. Yeah. Well, uh, for those of you who've been living under a rock for the last five to ten years, um, uh, Room is the story of uh, Joy and Jack, who are a mother and a small boy, who have been held captive by a man called Old Nick. I can't remember, is he called Old Nick by then? He's called Old Nick That's by then, okay. yeah. Not his real name. Um, and uh, so, so held captive in a room uh, which they never leave. And uh, this is the story of, the film is the story of how they escape. Uh, and in this clip, you're going to see how Jack and Joy begin to prepare for Jack's escape from the room. Well, it's an extraordinary film and, and was rightly acclaimed. Um, but it must have been a very difficult uh, thing to shoot, to put together, uh, work with children yeah. but in that atmosphere and, and things like that. Was it the most challenging thing you'd done? Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of how stressed I was, Frank still sort of tops everything for some... <laughs> it was a very short schedule and the music and everything. But like emotionally and intellectually, that was mm -hmm. the hardest thing. Trying to tell the story sort of from the boy's point of view, mm -hmm. but without going into any kind of magic realism or things, you know, the novel is so definitively in his voice. Yeah. And how do you show the real room not filtered through the fantasy that he has of where he is mm -hmm. and not make an audience find it so rebarbative, so repulsive, so awful that they can't somehow understand this as a metaphor for something actually quite positive mm. about the capacity of love to, to, to kind of survive and, and really also about what parenting is and what it is to, to, to be parenting. Mm. So the, the fear was always that this, the reality of what comes through the lens will be overwhelming. Yeah. And, and I wanted to do the least possible amount of shaping of that. Mm. I didn't want to give us an easy time. I wanted to make it I wanted to really challenge us to believe that life in a tiny room like that could be functional, that, that there could be love there, that, that, that within that space you could create a world for the boy that was yeah. bearable mm -hmm. without tarting it up or pretending mm -hmm. it was bigger than it was. So we really did shoot in a sort of 11 by 8. Well, it, was, it was like... Was that small? It was really small. It was tiny. Mm -hmm. And we didn't cheat. We didn't... The camera, the lens is never outside that. The camera body was sometimes, so we mm. built this set with removable sections, mm. so crew and camera could, back of the camera could be out, mm. but the lens is always within that. The eye, your eye is always inside the box. Mm. That was really hard. What was quite interesting about it for me was that by the time we, we shot it more or less in sequence, so we, we, were, we did all the room stuff first, yeah. and then we did the, the, the stuff outside yeah. afterwards. We were dying to get out of that room by the time. You can imagine what, how hard it was to work. Yeah. It was really, I, I spent a lot of time in the bath because there was nowhere else to be in the room, you know, because you could see everything all the time. Mm. And, um, and yet when we came out of there into the world mm -hmm. and started filming, we all had a kind of weird mini version of what happens to the characters, which is they sort of want to go back. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. But, but it was, yeah, it was a very exhilarating, and working with somebody that young, mm. trying to, explain to them what's happening without telling them things that they shouldn't know about. Fighting against the arrival of his adult teeth, 
<laughs> which was like a major. Yeah. Yeah, you know, all what, what age was he when he did it? Was he, he was five? no, he was a little bit older. Luckily, he was. A small, he's extra, I mean, he's extraordinary, and, he, and you see child amazing. actors like that who can deliver performances, and you think, how do they, how do they do? I mean, oh, it, mu it must be a lot up to you and the, the fellow actors as well in terms of how you cast. Yes, but it has to be there. Yeah. I mean, it's it, he's he's proof that it is. It's a sort of innate capacity that yeah. actors have, which. Mm. And it was amazing to watch him because he was a little actor. He was not, I mean, I've worked with kids who just have a presence and a bearing, mm -hmm. which is beautiful and you can film it and watch them. But to have to play scenes where you lose your temper, where you're emotional, where the mood shifts, where there are proper actually things to do, they have to have that in them. Mm -hmm. But it was still new to him and it was very, very hard at the beginning. Mm -hmm. By the end, on the last day of filming, there's a scene where his mum, his, his mum is taken away by paramedics. And he cries. He stands at the top of the stairs and he watches her go and he cries. Now, all the crying in room was me rushing in with glycerin and popping it in, you know. Oh, that's how they do it. Uh-huh. Wow. Um, on that day, he cried for real, yeah. at, you know, in that, in that scene. Mm. And when we called cut, it wasn't like he was really upset and needed to be comforted. He was like, yes, yes, I worked it out. He worked it out. He said, uh, and I talked to him and he said, I, I got it. I, I can I can find it, and then I can kind of switch it off. Right. Extraordinary. That's exciting. It was like over the course of the ten weeks yeah. that we shot, it was like you just watched him get better and better as an mm. actor. Well, I suppose when you're ready, you're ready. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's one last question, and then we'll uh, hand over to, uh, some questions from the audience. Uh, you, you last film The Little Stranger, um, Room, Emma, Emma Donoghue, um, and there's uh, and uh, I believe that you're about to embark with, um, is it BBC? BBC. Uh, for Sally Rooney's Normal People. Yeah. Which I, um, and I said I wasn't going to do another adaptation after, actually are. after Room, and then I couldn't not do The Little Stranger, and now I couldn't not do <laughs> Sally Rooney's. But. but is there something, I mean, those are three women, and they're three very distinctive women's voices mm -hmm. in fiction. Is there something that attracts you and interests you about the way a woman tells a story? I think there must be, because there's been a lot. I mean, I've worked really, odds, yeah. I've worked really closely with women novelists, particularly. Mm. I get. I I also work with a read like so. A lot of the people that I work with in Element Pictures, where I mm. tend to do my films, um, that I work most closely with are also women on on script and on on just you know across a lot of the work. I, I'm not sure. It's never been a conscious thing. Mm -hmm. But, but people, it's interesting, before I made Room, I did have an interview with somebody who said, all your central characters are men, you know, and I get it, it's true. Yeah, um, but that's a function of how they, how, how, you know, it's like the default setting in scripts. If you've got an every person in a script, they tend, to, up until recently, tended mm. to have just been assumed to be a man. Mm. But I, but, and I think one of the reasons why Room appealed to me in the first place was just, I wanted to have a, I wanted to deal with it a central female character mm -hmm. and then working with Emma just we we hit it off so well mm. and and again Little Stranger and something in the writing must there's a kind of sensibility which I really respond to I think you could also say that women are because a woman's voice is becoming much more much louder in the world now and people are taking much more notice for for all the right sure. reasons but there's a sense that these are new stories yeah I don't think a man could have written room no in the same way um, and so there is a sense that these are, these are the new stuff. This is yeah, the, and they know. tend to, you know, like the Little Stranger, which is a film which which really addresses a certain kind of masculinity, mm -hmm. and it's very subversive as a as a story. Mm. 
And again, I think that I think that that Sarah's position vis-a-vis -vis that character is so particular. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm a sort of magpie. I, I just like I'm I'm drawn to things which resonate with me, but I like but I find them in odd places. And I find, you know, when I read something which is so I think you're right really, that there's just a freshness of perspective mm. that is what I've been drawn to. Mm. That's tremendous. Right, ladies and gentlemen, here's your chance. Stick your hands in the air if you would like to ask Lenny a question. The difficult first question. There's, There's a, a man around. straight up there at the back there. <coughs> when a project gets screen left and you've started shooting, are you able to maintain a level of confidence? Or is it taking trouble? So, yeah. So do I keep the level of confidence after something's going? I, I go up and down like crazy. <laughs> and, I'm, and there's always a point. There's a, there's a point when something is greenlit where I immediately become really... It's like whenever, when there's anything you really want. You know, as soon as you get it, you start to wonder if you really wanted it at all or the reality of the fact that you've really got to do it now. Especially if you've pitched three... Like with, with Room, where I pitched so hard to get it over such a long period of time. Then the reality of having to try and make something that lives up to that. And, and there's always a point at, before everything that I've done usually quite close to shooting where I think it's a disaster, it's going to be the last thing I ever make. Um, and I've got, it's less, that's less freaky now because I, I recognize the pattern. But yeah, I think, I, again, I have a sort of bullish quality which is that I just keep going. But there are definitely peaks and troughs to the level of confidence. Mm. And anybody who projects a kind of absolute certainty, you know, I just think, unless, you know, that's Simon Cowell, or you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not a very appealing characteristic, I think. Poor man. Sorry. Much, much maligned. I could, have picked Simon Donald, I could have picked Donald Trump. So. Uh, well, yes, ma'am. <laughs> Can you see that? We'll come to you next, sir. Um, I wonder if you could speak a bit about the adaptation of normal people. And um, I mean, obviously, there's the sort of Trinity connection there with you and Sally. But I wanted to hear a bit more about um, what drew you to this project and also if there's a difference in adapting a novel for television versus for film. Uh, the second part, I, I think they, they sort of, novels kind of, they tell you pretty quickly which they suit. And normal people, it's, it's such an episodic story. You know, it's this kind of, you obviously know it, so it's, a, it's this on and off affair between these two characters starts when they're about 18 and takes them to about 22, 23 when they leave college. And so it, it had this kind of, it was like a pulsing experience when you read it. It kind of grows in this relationship ebbs and flows. And so it felt like it was episodic. And then it allows you to really die, you know, you can get much more into what we're doing, which is 12 half hours than we could oh, into, into a feed. And it's a short book, so we're really able to go into detail. Mm. And then I think what drew me to normal people is just, okay, great writing, incredibly direct writing. I mean, remarkably, like she's a really great writer, I think, uniquely good. And, and the fact that she's still 27 or 28 is, is sort of amazing. And disgusting. And, and awful. Um, and, uh, and that, and that the, the mother, Connell's mother character in it, I, I sort of had this deep moment of sadness when I came to the bit where she says, look, I'm 35. I thought, oh my God, his mother is 35. Um, uh, but uh, I think just that she writes intimacy. 
I found the novel really revelatory because, because I just thought of it as a celebration. First of all, it's a celebration of sexual intimacy, which you rarely see. You always see sex is usually in, in, in the deeper dramas or supposedly deeper dramas. It's always a problem or it's problematized, you know. And this is, this is very real, very truthful, and very celebratory of these two characters. And I, f I felt really drawn to that. And actually, even as a personal challenge, because any, any of the sex in any of my films is terrible. Not, I would like to say not terribly made, but like it's always been, you know, like in Frank, bit, it's comedically a terrible. Bit wrong, yeah. You know, and in other things, it's always been a sort of a, a moment of sadness or disconnection. So I really wanted to do that. And also, I think it, it represents a really different phase in Irish cultural life that we're in now, where, um, and I, I find the generation of people that she's writing about really interesting. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why I wanted to do it. Uh, yes, sir. I'm intrigued by uh, director. Oh, just uh, wait to the microphone so that everyone can hear. Thank you, sir. I'm intrigued by directors' views of other directors in movies that you'd like to emulate. Uh, I know, for example, Martin McDonough, his first movie, was it In Bruges, you know, yes. for example? I mean, yeah. We all have favourite movies and whatnot, and who would you like to emulate? Them? <laughs> Wait, what did you think of The Favourite, for example? Well, The Favourite, I, I really enjoyed. I think he's a really amazing filmmaker, Yorgos. And it's from the same stable. So, in a way, in that ad is the producer. My producer also produced that. And, um, so I'm, I was disposed, predisposed to liking it also. Who would I like to emulate? I mean, I see films, I watch a lot, and I still feel completely in awe of um, so many filmmakers. You know, I think it's, a, it's, it's probably a thing that the things that I'm good at doing, I don't think of as difficult because I, they, they, they come fairly naturally. But there are things that I see other people do that I just don't know how it is possible to achieve that level of, of excellence. And I'm trying to think who I would aspire to at the moment. Yeah, so Sukharov, the Russian director, mm. is something so extraordinary. Um, I think, even though, and interestingly, I don't always emotionally collect, connect with his films, um, uh, the, the guy who directed The Square and Force Majeure, um, his name has just gone out of my head. Ruben Ostlin, thank you. Um, I think he's a master of what he does. I mean, the simplicity and the choices of where he puts the camera, like at a technical level for me, are amazing. Pavel Pavlikovsky, who made Ida and Cold War, I think he's just absolutely a master of what he's doing. Um, Deborah Granick, American filmmaker. Lynn Ramsey's last film, You Were Never Really Here, I thought that was a masterpiece. Uh, yes. So there are, I, there's no shortage of people whose work I... Mm drop my cap too. A uh, couple more. Um, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Hi, yeah. I was wondering if you could just talk about your process with the edit. Do you shoot with the edit in mind or do you leave some breathing room to find it in, in post-production? I think I do a bit of both. So I, I do shoot with the edit in mind, yes, um, in that I'm trying to construct a sequence and so I'm trying to shoot for that flavor and the flow and where the focus is and where the point of view is and how the pace is going to work. But you should always, I believe, be open in the edit to discovering something in the material that you didn't really know was there. Or, or I work with a brilliant editor 
who is quite likely to find something or a way of cutting that I haven't thought about. It's the same as the way I work with on set. I go there with a plan, but I try to direct what's actually in front of me, not some idealized version of it in my head. So you watch the actors first of all. I try to watch them as, as openly as I can. And if something happens in rehearsal that I think is more interesting, then I go with that. But I always have a plan to start with. Um, it's my sad chore, um, Lenny, and everyone uh, to say that the evening is over. I'm sorry, uh, but um, uh, yeah, time has beaten us. Um, so we've been chatting so much. It's great. I've really enjoyed it. Um, uh, thank you very much, um, Lenny, for coming up to Belfast. Pleasure. And for taking part today and also introducing films uh, to the festival, um, which is great. And uh, thank you all for uh, for coming up. I should ask. Uh, very quickly, what's next? What's your, is normal people? Normal people's next, and then I'm make, I'm working on a project which I'm writing, which is a film about a man called Emil Griffith. If you look him up, he was a uh, well, he was a gay boxer in the mm. 1960s in America. It's an extraordinary story. So that's I hope the next film. Um, well, thank you, everyone. Uh, thank you to the KFD. Thank you to Belfast Film Festival. Most of all, thank you to Lenny Hugh. Thank you, you in the film. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.